I would just like to say in passing to those of you who can afford the Radio Times that this program bears no relation whatsoever to the bill matter, that's to say, the sale of Manhattan. <laughs> Oh, come, 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 dear listeners. You know, it's not that bad. Of course not! Come, Mr. Greenslade, tell them the good news. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the extraordinary talking-type wireless goon show. which examines the goon show and the goons themselves now uh regular listeners will <clears throat> maybe i should rephrase that uh, the regular listener will be aware that very often at the end of these podcasts i issue a plea for uh, nice reviews and ratings on itunes because it helps push and promote the show and more people become aware of it uh, i decided just this once to start the show with this request because you know um, quite possibly a lot of people don't actually make it to the end of these episodes uh, and, and may well bail, you know, five minutes in. I hope not. I hope you stick it right to the bitter end, but, you know, you never know. Uh, so, you know, if you do like the show, please take two minutes to pop over to iTunes and leave a lovely review and preferably five stars. That would be so much appreciated. Uh, it's okay. You can, you can do it now. I'm, I'm quite happy to wait. Thank you so much for that. You're my favorite listener. Uh, and now on with the show. My guest today is Angie Budd. Hello, Angie. Hello, Tyler. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining me. Uh, you joined the long list of, of, of women who have been guests on my podcast. Uh, oh, I really I, I really need to start asking some men to be guests because it's just been <laughs> so many women. Um, you're the third, actually, Angie. I, I'm, oh, I'm... yes, because you had had my old school pal Julie on, didn't you? For a, Yes, for I a did. Call. Yeah. Yeah. Ju Julie and I uh, discussed her book, a great book about Larry Stevens. Mm. Um, and she actually mentioned mm. you in that in that podcast, not by That's name. That's right. And, and I've read the book. It's it's a fascinating history of of, you know, one of the unsung heroes of the Goon Show, really. Um, you know, and, and I, when I knew Julie, she wasn't really into the Goons and I was. It was ironic. Um, you know, I've been a, a big Goon fan, certainly since the age of about 14, 15. I'd, I'd encountered them before then but I hadn't really got really into them and obsessive with them until about 14 or 15. Um, and it's funny now, you know, Julie finding out about Larry Stevens being her cousin, his connection with not only the goons, but Hancock yeah. as well. You know, Hancock was best man at Larry's wedding. And it's nice to have a little sort of connection between us still. Absolutely. So how did you come to discover them? Because you were born, I'm guessing, sort of from what you've told me, late 60s. Yeah, I, I suppose, um, like I know some of you guests have mentioned in your previous podcast, us guys and girls of a certain generation, we still had Harry, Peter and Spike in our consciousness. So I always knew of Spike and, and Harry and, and Peter, but... My, I had a, a best mate at school called Leah Stone and she was really into them and she got me into them. Um, and I remember listening to, I can't remember which one, it was probably the Batter Pudding Hurler of Bexelon Sea or something like that for the first time and being blown away um, about how refreshing and different the comedy was. Mm. Um, and that's when... I really started sort of like looking into, I think certainly sort of P Peter Sellers career a bit more. And I, and I became a fanatical Peter Sellers fan. I, I would just scour the radio times to look at stuff 
that he was in or even a brief mention of him. Um, you know, I would I would watch. And the same with Tony Hancock. She got me into Hancock at the same time. Very different style of comedy, yeah. obviously, but still with that, you know, if you think of the Kenneth Williams characters that um, used to be on the show, which we, as we know, Hancock hated, yeah. but those kind of characters were slightly akin to uh, the characters on The Goons. Because Ke- Kenneth Williams had the snide voice, didn't he? And he and he had <laughs> yeah. the posh voice, and he had the the slightly working class character. I think. I'm yeah, she's sort of a grumpy old man, sort of voice like that, you know. That's it. That's it. Yeah. No, but Kenneth Kenneth Williams always used to say he only had five funny voices, but the, you know he lived off of those. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, I think the grumpy old man voice was actually based on his dad. Um, that you used to run a barber shop, and they didn't really see eye to eye. Well, yeah. Well, so yeah, but didn't he um let on for a while that he was responsible for his old man's demise. Mm. Have, you heard, have you heard that story? Yeah, vaguely, vaguely. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, we'll draw a veil over that for now, but yeah. um, it's not the Kenneth Williams podcast. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so you got into Hancock, but but the goons yeah. were the, the one for you, yeah? Yeah, and I think I was I was an odd teenager. I, I didn't have posters of Duran Duran or Ultravox <laughs> on my walls. I had... Daleks, Tony Hancock and Peter Sellers, you know, (laughs) Um, and I just wanted to be like Peter Sellers. I had this dream of growing up being an actress and I would practice his voices and Spike's, but to a lesser extent Spike's, but certainly Sellers, I would practice all of those voices from the goons and Cluzo and all of that for hours in front of the mirror, uh, trying to get them right. And I would listen to the the goon show LPs and start coming out with the, the, the little catchphrases at school. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I got a couple of my friends to, to get vaguely interested in it, but they didn't have the passion for it that Lee and myself had at the time. I don't listen as often as I did when I was a teenager and young woman, but when I do, I always enjoy it. And I always laugh because the humor is just so daft. It's, um, it's very cartoonish. It's like, listening to a, a a children's cartoon that's got um more adult themes in almost mm, mm, um you know mm. and it's probably why the telegoons didn't work because you could actually see whereas in your mind's eye as you know you can imagine what these characters are like you put your own slant on them um and you know the things that happens to Eccles, like you know i don't know he's got a unbroken bone in his body <laughs> poor chap you know wow, um, yeah yeah as we'll discuss that in this episode as well i think because there's, yes. there's a very famous <laughs> scene coming up yes um, but, there is. but um did you did you just buy the lps when you could get them or did you record yeah. them off the radio when they came were, were repeated um, or, or what yeah i think i mostly bought the lps same with hancock um and probably did record some but I had very limited funds, so my lovely C90s got overrun with probably the chart show hosted Mm. by Noel Edmonds or whoever was on at the time, you know. Um, But I bought the book of the scripts. I bought a couple of those, and I would read them to my mates and do all the voices. Mm. Um, And some were entertained and some were highly bored and, you know. But, yeah, that's how I kind of kept it alive. Um, and would just then, you know, devour every Peter Sellers film or anything that Hancock was in or Milligan was in. I do remember when I was younger, my dad used to like the Q series. Oh, yeah. Um, my parents were never big Goons fans, um, but my dad used to like the Q. And there was the famous one with the Dalek, because obviously that melds two things together that I like. So the Dalek comes home and... Um, you know, his wife is trying to make him tea and things like oh, that. Oh, yes, that, that sketch. Yeah, I yeah, heard the one that sketch. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so obviously you, you, you've got the LPs. Um, mm. And I think it was it was around 1977 that an LP, BBC LP came out, which had the subject of today's episode, uh, which is Napoleon's mm. Piano on it. Yes. Um, which also had the flea. On the B side, which is right, yeah. up there as one of my my all time favorite uh, goon shows. Yeah, 
Um, but yeah, uh, Napoleon's piano is is the one that you wanted to come on and talk about today. Is is that your? Would you say that is your favourite goon show of all time? Uh, I would say it's my second favourite goon show of all time. My first favourite goon show of all time you've already talked about, which is the man that never who never was. Oh yeah. Um, and um, basically, I think the reason that I like that the best is because it is cocking a snook at all those old war movies that were so achingly patriotic and um you know and people always say oh satire was invented in the 1960s it wasn't it wasn't I mean you know satire's always been there oh, if you look yes. at the political cartoons of you know the 1700s for example uh, specifically um you know when you had George III and then the, the Prince of Wales they, they were um extremely um targeted shall we say but well, I yeah, because think... you got Jonathan Swift who wrote. Yeah. What's that? No, he, he, he wrote, um, was it A Modest Proposal, which was basically oh. a, a, um, a slightly tongue, well, I think it was, I hope it was, a tongue-in-cheek treatise oh. about, and, uh, on the subject of eating babies. Oh, lovely. Satirising something at the time. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but oh. uh, absolutely right, yeah. Um, Gilray and um, Hogarth and Crookshank oh. and people like that. Um, Hogarth that's what I was thinking of mm. he does the wakes progress I think um, yeah all of those and then it seems to have gone a bit quiet in Victorian times and then you, you know it's it if you look at um, what Spike was writing it was it was very satirical um, and there, there, there doesn't seem to have been a lot else out on, on the uh, the BBC late programme at the time that looked at satirising current events. But because obviously, as we know, Spike was writing right up to the wire on a lot of the scripts, um, you know, what was put in was very current. Mm. And we've got a couple of current things in Napoleon's Piano, which kind of like uh, does, does make the point a little bit. One of them is the fact that uh, when Minnie and Henry uh, are at the Foreign Office, where Seagun goes to try and get passage to France to pick up the piano, um, they they think he's the Prime Minister Anthony Eden, and they're trying to turn him away. And I think Eden had been um, voted in in April of that year. And of course, mm. personality-wise, very very different to Churchill, very different. Yeah. And of course, he didn't last long in the job because he was an ill man when he took the post. So. Um, you know, going from that amazing personality, rightly or wrongly, if you believe in his politics or not, it's not the point. But you have um, a much more quieter, no less capable in many respects, but a much more quieter personality that people, you know, didn't get. He wasn't as polarising, I suppose you could say, as Churchill. That must be the Prime Minister at the door. Yes, that must be the Prime Minister. Coming, Anthony, coming. Yes. And then, uh, not to give the spoilers away, there's a certain uh, uh, piece of rock in the um, in the Atlantic, I think, is it the Atlantic, that also is mm. mentioned, Yeah, we'll which we'll, I no doubt we'll get to later. We'll come on to that, absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I want to I talk, uh, in the, when we get to I want to talk about... Um, that Minnie and Henry sequence because there's mm. there's there's some other stuff in that that uh, mm. is quite topical was yes. quite topical um, yeah and it's something that actually is very close to my well it was very close to my heart I'll, I'll go into that in a little bit but mm. um but so so Napoleon's piano so it's series six episode four it was broadcast on the 11th of October 1955 yeah um, Spike wrote it on his own and it was produced by yeah. Peter Eaton uh, now. Right from the beginning, because I asked you just before we started recording, um, what mm. version of this episode did you listen to? And, and you said you'd uh, we'd had it on LP, but you'd also listened to the BBC Sounds version. And, yeah, and, and there's a YouTube version as well. And YouTube, which okay. I think I believe a couple of minutes has been cut out of. Yeah. So what happened was I won't go into it too much, but basically. Um, from series five onwards, transcription services started uh, sending out goon shows for to foreign radio stations, and they would trim them down. 
and they'd take out a lot of topical references, um, some dubious references or references which might be, you might have sort of racial sensitivity to them, shall we say. Uh, I think, I, I didn't actually check, I think the LP version is, is, is probably the, the sort of 28 minute, 20, 28 and a half minute version. Uh, but on the um, fabulous Goon Show Compendium series, which I'm not sure mm. if you're aware of those, but several years ago, they put out uh, all the existing Goon Shows in um, as, as, you know, restored, um, yeah. digitally enhanced, and with as much missing material um, reinstated, basically. Yeah. Okay. Gonna put uh, that on the wish list then. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you have to put your house up for sale to pay for them. Oh, um, oh right, yeah. okay. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> um, but so, so I'd always been familiar with uh, Napoleon's piano from the from the well, from in my case the tape, the BBC tape. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah very familiar with it. And I and I, I must admit I hadn't listened to the to the version on the on the compendium uh, CD. So I, I listened to it for the first time, and right from the beginning, it wrong footed me. Okay. Oh, right. And, and I'll tell you why. And I, let me just read you because the week that this went out, which was uh, in October '55, the Radio Times had a synopsis. Uh, the synopsis reads: Shortly after the makers of Lurgy, the American all-purpose loaf, have offered twenty thousand dollars to the first person to cross the Atlantic in a leaky canoe, two international part-time dustmen. Brigadier T. Sinjin Gritpipe Thin and Count Fred Moriarty Esquire suddenly discover the long-lost deeds proving that New York belongs to Nettie Seagoon. A mysterious Count Jim Pills Esquire succeeds in persuading Nettie to cross the Atlantic in a leaky canoe to claim this fragment of the Americas as his own. The program also explains the significance of ritual saxophone playing at Medicine Hat during the first phase of the November moon. So, does that sum up Napoleon's piano to you? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different. No, it's nothing like it, is it? No. So, so what happened was, and this is where I said I was wrong-footed when I, when I started listening to the actual episode, um, yeah. <clears throat> because Greenslade announces uh, that the show is not the show as build, which the, oh. was the sale of Manhattan, so, right. so in the Radio Times, that synopsis was for the sale of Manhattan, um, which went out uh, in November. It was the 11th episode. Um, okay. So I don't know why. I mean, I'm guessing that what happened was that Spike had written the script for this episode, The Sale of Manhattan, and that was the one that was due to be recorded. And then for one reason or another, um, he decided to switch to Napoleon's Piano. And it was too mm. late because it all, you know, Radio Times had already yeah. gone to press. Um, and so I guess that's why Greenslade had to sort of announce that right at the beginning. Mm. And obviously that announcement was removed from the versions that went out, you know, on the yeah. LP and whatnot. I will read you though, because, um, you know, it's always quite difficult to kind of sum up uh, a Goon Show episode in terms of a plot. Uh, yes but, this but, one does have a bit of a one to be fair well, it it's does. one of the ones where it does have a distinct kind of certainly beginning and a middle i'm not sure about the end but you know it's it's getting there yeah but you 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 you, you were a q show fan weren't you um yeah, yeah. Uh, very often they would just end with what are we going to do now um and i'm not saying that's how this ends but i mean this has got one of the yeah this has got one of the more structured uh, yeah. plots um, and it's it's not surprising because it's you know it's series six as the series went on as they got to series eight series nine and, and series ten beginning middle and an end was a luxury you know yeah. uh, don't expect that in the goon show folks it's very much um you know if, yeah and from... and just for for my own personal taste i i think this sort of 1955 1956 for me is when i really think Spike was at the height of his his prowess with writing. That the characters were well embedded by this time. They had certain things that they were kind of expected to do in each show, as it were, and they did that most of the time. It's not quite as insane as some of the other sort of later episodes. Yeah. So, just for my own personal taste, 
Um, I think this period, maybe maybe late 54, 55 to 56, when, when I'm enjoying the Goon Show uh, the most, I suppose. Yeah, I'm probably the same. I'm probably... I kind of inclined towards series seven. So that's mm. obviously the series after this. Um, yeah. When it's when it's still, there's still storylines. Um, yeah. But there's also, there are also kind of digressions and um, uh, forays outside mm. of the script sometimes almost, it seems. But, um, but no, so, so what I'll do, I'll, in the actual Goon Show script book, they have... Uh, included a synopsis which I'm just going to read because it's useful so that I don't have to try and you know in my own words summarize what the show is about sure Uh, so tricked into signing a contract to bring over to England the very piano that Napoleon played at Waterloo Nettie Seagoon stows away on a boat to France a chance meeting in the disreputable Cafe Tom with piano robbery specialist Justin Eidelberger seems to solve all Nettie's problems but others too are after Napoleon's piano with £10,000 at stake, the only solution is to sail the instrument back to England, a voyage fraught with peril. There you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, he had uh, blood knocked down with the lurgy and Eccles up with the lark, apparently. That's right. But uh, so the show, the show, the, the plot begins um, and it's, yes. it's, it's classic Neddy as the unwitting fool tricked into mm. a, a dastardly plan by Grit Pipe and Moriarty, as so many of these start. You know, he's he's set yes. up to be the fall guy. Um, and no one but Seekham could do Neddy Seekham, could they? No, it's that it's that innocent pomposity. Um, you know, because he's the fall guy all the time. And I think it's one of the things Spike um as as we all know hated pomposity and in any form. So to make the hero as as hapless as possible, but have this innocent faith in his own ability. Seekham has this exuberance that the yes. other that the other two lack, I think. Mm. He's got this, he can his pronunciation of individual words sometimes are just funny, mm. I find. Yeah. Um and uh, but in any case, so yeah, so he's he's, he's turned up to basically uh, mm. move this piano from one room to another, uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, Grit Pipe turns up and says he wants to borrow Moriarty's shoe because he wants to read the newspaper. Which uh, I looked in the, the actual in the original script, he says he wants to borrow the shoe because his is worn out, which I actually think's slightly mm. funnier. I don't know why. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. I, I I didn't really get the inference unless you know grip pipe thin as as his shoes are so bad that they he's put newspaper in because the soles have worn through or something. Oh, um, that's it. That is it. That's what it's got to yeah. be. Yeah. There you go. Because otherwise, it doesn't make sense, does no. it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the audience are laughing, so it must have been maybe a common thing if your soles wore down, and you couldn't you know, afford to go to the cobbler, you, people would put newspaper in their shoes. I'm going to edit. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to re-record my bit. I'm going to re-record <laughs> me saying uh, that I knew that all the time. I'm going to insert that into this. Ah. I don't want to sound stupid, but yeah, you're right. Um, but but uh, moving on, but it's the, the, the mm. there's the first reference to have a gorilla, which is this yeah. episode's uh, running gag. That's, that's, that's the theme that runs all the way through. There's also in this show the the famous direction in the script, uh, gorilla fighting another gorilla, brackets, if you can't get the right sound, try two lions instead. Which, <laughs> which yeah. uh, uh, you know, says it all really. Um, yeah. the, the grand scheme, because it is a scheme, and it's quite mm. ingenious, um, is that uh, Grip Pipe and Moriarty uh, uh, want this priceless, piano that Napoleon played at Waterloo uh, and they want Nettie to to basically nick it from the Louvre in Paris mm. and bring it back to England yeah um, and unfortunately Nettie signed a contract so he's pretty much obliged to, to do this and so he has to go off to uh, what is it that Minnie and Henry are, what, what's the that the, the, they're actually it's the foreign office to get passports and visas Oh, it is. Yes, it yeah. is. Because, and, and again, bits of this were cut. Because um, I, mm. I, I was 
probably about 20 odd years ago, I went through a phase of being obsessed by or extremely interested in the Cambridge spies. Yeah. Um, Burgess and McLean and Philby and, mm. and Blunt and, and Cairncross. And uh, obviously, um, in fact, was it the, the same week? I'm trying to think now. It was the same week that the first Goon Show, Crazy People, went out in 51, May 51. Mm. Was the week, the weekend or that weekend, either before or after, Burgess and McLean uh, defected to Russia. Mm. Uh, and then... I'm I'm absolutely sure you're right. It it I know it was in the early fifties, but um, there must have been rumblings about Philby. Oh yeah, there was because um, later on in the year, there's an actual announcement, a government announcement that says, "Well, Philby was not part of that spiring." Um, so I guess then again, at the time of writing, because we're looking at October time, there was probably rumblings in the press. Is he, is he, isn't he? So, you know, the uh, readers of popular newspapers had had things to read about about it. I know that the politician, Labour politician. Oh, God, I should have prepared for this. Um, Tom Dryberg, I think his name was. He wrote mm. a book about Guy Burgess in the 50s. Mm. And, and I'm wondering whether that was maybe that had come out around this time. But, yeah. but, but I know that in, um, in November 55, Harold Macmillan, who was then the foreign secretary, mm. um, yeah, officially cleared Philby in the House of Commons. And then, of course, Philby went off to Beirut <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then turned up in Moscow in 1963. Mr. Harold Philby, on the right, holds a press conference to deny charges that he was involved in the disappearance of Burgess and McLean. The last time I spoke to a communist, knowing that he was a communist, was sometime in 1934. But yeah, so there's this little sequence with, with Minnie and Henry referring, mm. to, uh, referring to the foreign secretary wanting the key to the safe with the secret documents in. Segan comes in and says he wants to leave the country and Minnie and Henry think he's going to Russia. It's like the guy is a complete idiot, but he he just thinks that he is the best thing since sliced bread. And this is half of the humour with the character is that he can't see what others see about him. Yes, um, yes. You know, um, and we all know people like that who are complete, you know, but... Oh, oh he's, got um, a, he's got a massively inflated sense of his own worth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think Spike Milligan hated those kind of people, you know. I think they really got on his nerves. Um, so, you know, any any chance to poke the balloon of pomposity, he's going to do it, you know. Yes, yeah. So, so before we go, go any further, in The Goon Show, who's your favourite character? Oh, that's an ask. That is an ask. Um <sighs> I don't have one favourite character, to be fair. I've got some favourite pairings. Okay. Um, I'll accept that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I know some of your other guests have said, um, I used to like, I think, Eccles and Blue Bottle. Their little exchanges, the best. Um, and I still do to a certain extent. Minnie and Henry are coming a close second, followed by, I think, Rip Pipe Thin and Moriarty. And then you've got kind of like, Bloodnock, who's out there on his own. He doesn't get paired with a lot of people. Um, and he's an absolute out-and-out out villain, really. And, and I do wonder whether he was based on some of the officers that the guys must have known. Well, certainly Spike probably did. Probably oh, had... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, in the war. Doubt. Yeah. And, you know, is then again this sort of, like, upper-class twits with vaguely um, dodgy contacts you know, you know um, well, he's, well he's brandy soaked isn't he and he's yeah, all he's, the time. Uh, he's subscribing to these um uh french art magazines and you know he's uh, <laughs> thoroughly i keep using this word but you know, it's quite appropriate he's thoroughly disreputable i was just gonna say that yeah disreputable mm. is the word mm. he's got this veneer of respectability you know um which is which is quite funny so i think i i'm going to go if if you really want to twist my arm i'm probably going to go for eccles the reason is i feel a bit sorry for eccles because i think he is the full guy 
uh, in everything. And I know that's what's expected of him, but he carries on cheerfully regardless. You know, how many limbs get uh, sawn off, he gets decapitated. He's, he's always back the next week, cheerfully whistling. He's a cheerful optimist, the guy that carries on, as yeah, it were. Yeah, you know, he rarely gets riled. Um He's friendly, he'll speak to anybody in the show, he befriends everybody and everyone takes the rise out of him and takes the mickey out of him and uh, gets him to do all the menial tasks and things like that. And I thought, oh, sorry for the guy. And it's that sort of innocent surprise when things happen to him that is hilarious. Yeah, bliss, he's blissfully unaware of everything going on around him. Just sails through life, you know. I envy him in some ways. Yeah, <laughs> which would be a bit more like Eccles. Yeah, and we and we meet him in this episode. He's he's on the boat, isn't he? That um, yes. that Neddy uh, takes to France, and he's mm. he's he's singing. Um, I talk to the trees from Paint Your Wagon. I talk to the trees. <laughs> That's why they put me away. <laughs> The show would open on the we- uh, in the West End in '53. Um, yeah. Okay. Maybe Spike went to see it. Probably um, did. And there's another. There's another later on in the show. There's another reference to a a song that would have been very well known at the time. Yes. Um, yes. I've actually that got is? that on vinyl somewhere. Yeah. 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 Tony Bennett classic. Yeah. Well, I I I was aware of it vaguely. Um, and obviously the, the 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 scene is when um uh, we are getting ahead of ourselves but blue bottle uh, falls off the well falls off the piano we think into but he, the sea. He, well yeah. he, he enters the sea and 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 Segan says take my hand and and blue bottle says why are you a stranger in paradise which obviously mm. uh the, which get which gets it gets a huge woof of recognition from the yeah. audience doesn't it yeah it does <laughs> it does. So yeah, it was probably charting at the time, and it had been covered so many times as well. Um, I've no doubt the song is older than 1955. From the little bit of research I did, it's from the musical *Kismet*. It was from the early 50s. Hmm. Um, there's also there was a, at least two references to those without television. Did you yes. pick up on those? But the benefit of those without television, he's painted. So that's, that's, that's the first one. And there's one later on as well. There is. I yeah. think when they're in the Louvre. Yeah. Now, do you know, do you know why that was? No, I don't know. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So this show goes out, what, 11th of October, 1955. So let's assume that Spike wrote it the week before. So, you know, the first week of October. Now, the first, so commercial television, basically, the first ITV network had launched on the 22nd of September. And that was um, uh, associated rediffusion. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that, that the first uh, so so commercial television began seven fifteen p.m. on the twenty second of September. Uh, and by the way, it is associated rediffusion, not rediffusion. Uh, anyone that says rediffusion should be locked up. Commercial television is here. Among those who will bring the new programs to you are Sir John Barbirolli, who will give you fortnightly concerts with the Halle Orchestra. John Clements will present world classic dramas in the series International Theatre. Val Parnell will bring you stars from the Palladium, the world's number one variety theatre. And here's Jack Hilton, advisor on light entertainment to associated rediffusion. Uh, so that, so that was huge. Obviously, that was every, you know, everyone that was, was talking about days. that. Yeah, because um, people got to see TV adverts for the first time. Um, oh, can you remember what the first one was? Yes. Well, I can't yeah, remember. Then. I can't remember because I wasn't around, but I know that it was it was toothpaste. It was. Uh, yeah, uh, I can't remember which actual um, brand of toothpaste now, but yes, yeah, that's uh, right. Gibbs. Gibbs SR probably. Yeah. That'd be it. Yeah, yes. Like um, and and on that first night, um, among other things, broadcast there was a variety show. Uh, in which Harry Seacombe appeared. Ah, do you think it was a little sort of dig at Harry then? Well, well, possibly because possibly because two days later on Associated Rediffusion, the Harry Seacombe show was screened. Okay, (laughs) Um, which 
uh, was just a one-off yeah. and, and it, it bore no resemblance to the Harry Seacombe show of the 60s and 70s. It had um, Wilson, Keppel and Betty. Oh, the Egyptian dancers. Yes. 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 And I've just, obviously, no, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, this show, but I can imagine, mm. I'm sure Harry probably put on one of those um, headdresses and, and joined in. Um, and if he didn't, then, you know, he missed the trick there. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so, so you know, commercial television was, was, was all the rage. And, and I'm assuming that's why those references to people without yeah. television were, were included. Yeah, so, so Seagrin arrives in Paris. He makes for the Café Tom. Uh, yes. <laughs> I just love that. I love the name, Café Tom. <laughs> well, uh, if, you, if you're in policing circles, we know what that alludes to. So I do wonder oh, whether, yeah. Yeah, yeah, whether yeah. Spike knew that or not. Yeah, possibly. I, I just thought it was like, it, Tom's one of those names a bit like Fred. Yeah, it's it could of, be just that. Yeah. It could be, yeah. Um, but the... the <laughs> The proprietor was uh, Morris Ponk. Now, uh, s- students of the goons, mm. of which there are many, I hope, um, will be f- will be familiar with the name Morris Ponk um, because it's been used a number of times uh, in, a, in a, a number of different mediums, even uh, because sh- the goons show two episodes before this one, so episode two of series six, the secret escritoire. Okay, I had to, oh, I had to, run, I had to run at that word, <laughs> the secret <laughs> escritoire, and the, there's a there's a short sequence in there where between Moriarty and Gritpipe where um, uh, the the name Maurice Ponk is referenced, and it gets a huge laugh from the audience. Look in this matchbox. Oh, Sapristi Knuckles! <laughs> Who is this man? Maurice Ponk. <laughs> Have you heard of the case of the Muckinese Battle Horn? Yes. Yeah, so that was a short film, um, unofficial goon show film, because Harry wasn't in it, but Dick Emery was. Uh, and Dick Emery, uh, one of the characters he plays, is referred to or is named as Morris Ponk. My name is Morris Ponk. Uh, and although, see, Larry Stevens wrote the Muckinese Battle Horn on his mm. own. So I'm wondering, and... and I should have messaged Julie and asked her about this, but wondering whether that was because Larry was a big one for, for funny names. Oh, um, I wonder if it's a Stevensism then. Yeah, it may well be. It may well be. And if Judy's listening, please let me know. Um, and also, <laughs> yeah. but but even as late as 1968 on the, the television show, The World of Beachcomber that Spike appeared in, there was uh, there were frequent references to Morris Ponk. Good evening to everybody except Morris Ponk. Now, according to this morning, and even <laughs> just, uh, and I'm sorry, I know I'm I'm beating this this Morris Ponk uh, motif into the ground, uh, but uh, in the Radio Times synopsis for the episode foiled by President Fred, there's mm. a reference to Morris Ponk. Okay, so wow. so it's a name that I'm just gonna have to look these up now. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so uh, moving away, moving on from Morris Punk, thank God. Um, Segan meets up with... Now, in The Goon Show, when they needed two fairly competent and shady characters mm. who weren't Grit Piper Moriarty, yeah. then, then, then they would bring in these two other characters called... Um, so you had the German, played by uh, Peter uh, uh, Justin Eidelberger, and yeah. Yakamoto, um, Japanese yeah. character played by Spike. They, they're used sparingly. They don't crop up a hell of a lot in The Goon Show, but what, what do you think of them? No. I, I mean, I, I, to be fair, I, I've only listened to a couple, I think a couple of more episodes with the room, and I can't actually remember kind of who they, um, what those ones were now, but... I had noticed that Yakamoto is is cut out of this one. If you listen to the, um, certainly the one on YouTube, completely cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have this we have the sequence. I, I always talk about um, sequences in the script where Spike would be looking for thirty seconds to kill. So he's, he's you know because it's it's hard work writing these scripts. So yeah. he so he likes lots of extended sound gags mm. where 
you know, he doesn't have to write any actual jokes. So there's a sequence where they're unfolding a map of the Louvre. Um, where, which, where your description is perfect because it is an extended sound gag. Yes. <laughs> sound gag as well, yes. literally and figuratively, yeah. Uh, we, 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 we come to the sequence which is um, very well celebrated uh, where they, uh, they're going to saw the legs off the piano. Yeah, so once they've got into the Louvre, um, they find the piano, and this is where... More, uh, Wallace Greenslade turns up as the French museum curator who rings a bell and goes, everybody out, everybody out, closing time. Greenslade doing his terrible comedy French accent. Oh, <laughs> I know. And you can you can hear the audience, go, because obviously Greenslade, as a BBC announcer, very straight-laced, uh, very uh, refined type of personality in speech and in mannerisms and in behaviour, and then suddenly he's playing a Frenchman, you know, and he's got a great, great scene, um, you know, where he can really put his hammy acting to good use. So that's that's really funny. And, and then they saw the legs off and it's because they they can't carry it it's too heavy. So and they found Eccles underneath the piano and then starts this running gag with who signed the contract. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, that's when the gag turns up. Together, lift. Hey, what's the old tennis frame? No, no, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. Put it down. Here, here. It's lighter when you let go, isn't it? I have an idea. We'll saw the legs off. Pickles. Give me that special piano leg saw that, uh, that you just happen to be carrying. <laughs> Thank you. Now. There. I've sawn off all four legs. Strange. The first time I've known of a piano with four legs. Hey. I keep falling down. <laughs> when, when I was first listening to the show, I'd have been 14. Mm. And a 14-year-old, I don't think I'd ever seen a piano in the wild at that age. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have known. I don't think I actually knew that pianos didn't have four legs. I probably just assumed they did. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, like you say, it's another instance of extreme violence being committed upon Eccles and him just kind of just blithely just, you know, shrugging mm -hmm. it off and carrying on. Uh, yeah. What we've missed out of this one is that Blood Knock has made an appearance. Oh, of course. Because Neddy originally encounters Bloodnock in Paris when he's staying at a hotel and Bloodnock tries to um, spear his kipper breakfast um, by standing at the window with a long pole with a fork on the end. That's and he right. says, well, what are you doing out there? He says, I was uh, fishing. He says, well, this is the 34th floor. I, yes, the river must have dropped. <laughs> you know, it's classic yeah. Bloodnock night. And... They find him trying to steal the piano because he's also signed a contract to move the piano from one room to another. So, you know, and that's why all, all three of them then start to float it back to England. And of course, this is where the, uh, the triumphal entrance of Blue Bottle happens. Um, yeah. And we hear about Rockall. And when I first listened to this, I didn't understand what Rockall was. I'd, I'd heard it on the shipping forecast. That's right. So I thought it must be in Ireland somewhere. But it yeah. was a very, very pertinent news item at the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's one of those just insanely British things that mark us out sometimes, you know, um, as to, you're thinking, why? Um, it, Rock Hall is a very small and rocky island in the North Atlantic, um, and it's within reach of the planned guided missile range in the Hebrides. Um, and basically in September, I think it was late September 1955, the British government had annexed it because they feared that if they didn't, foreign spies 
could use it as an observation post. So they claimed it for the British Empire, which cheesed off the, uh, I think, the Icelandians and the French a little bit. Um, and it was a big thing in the news at the time. And four men went there and just deposited a uh, Union Jack and a plaque to say that Rockhall was now British. And this is what Blue Bottle is ostensibly doing um, at the end of the show. Yeah, because he is he is he dropped by helicopter himself? Yes, he just come from HMS Boxer, which was an actual ship that was actually still operating at the time in those waters. So Spike was Spike had known his stuff. He knew what he was doing with this one. Well, yeah, yeah, and I, I'm I'm guessing that uh, the the press at the time, the British press, would mm. have been whipping this up. There'd, yeah. there'd have been a jingoistic fervor over all this. Yeah, and 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 none more so than than the Daily Express. And um, <laughs> yeah. Blue, Blue Bottle refers to uh, Lord Beaverbrook. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, the, the magnate who who owned it at the time, didn't they? So yeah, and Beaver, uh, Blue Bottle uh, says uh, refers to him as as Lord Beaverbrook, the the British patriot. Uh, <laughs> and and then he says, um, thinks I wonder why he lives in France. Yeah, uh, funny that. Which is quite topical in many <laughs> ways. Um, <laughs> Andrew Neil. Um, yes. uh, I read a great book actually about, um, well, which, which had, it was like, uh, what do you call it? A counterfactual novel came out a few years ago by CJ Sansom. Okay. It, was, it was called Dominion and, and, and it, one of those, um, what if the Nazis had won the war? Oh, alternative histories. I love those. I'm a big fan of Harry Turtledove and, um, Robert, somebody whose name, last name, I can't remember right now robert oh, harris harris absolutely yeah, robert harris yes um well if you love robert harris you love this book dominion basically it's got beaverbrook as the mm. um uh collaborationist prime minister of nazi occupied britain oh okay uh, i'm gonna add that to my audible wish list there you go, there you go. <laughs> um so again again you know beaverbrook sure at the time that spike was writing this because the, because of the yep. daily express because of i guess all the sort of talk about rock hall uh, I'm, mm. I'm sure that's why all this was was, was in the script mm. um it was pretty much <laughs> it was a it was such a little uninhabitable island that mm. they annexed it was like it was, it was the final it was the last act of empire wasn't it it was um but even you know unloading a cardboard union jack now that that tells me that spike is saying well you know uh, our, our um it's like how he's diminishing the sovereignty of it yes you know it, it is very much like that and, and you think well okay I mean I, and I doubt if a lot of people would have understood the strategic importance of of the place uh, and why it was annexed um, I'm sure there's a lot of very secret top secret files on nuclear missiles that um, you know that will probably get revealed at some stage that will um, show its true place in in the history of, of that particular type of weapon, no doubt. No doubt. But um, it just, see, I, I'm no doubt Spike thought it was extremely odd at the time. Oh yeah, and and uh, I could never quite work out. So I think Blue Bottle has has obviously mistaken Napoleon's piano for Rockle, and that's why yes, he's he's he's, yes. he's been sort of uh, landed on top of it. Um, and of yeah. course, as so often happens in these in these goon shows. Uh, it, it ends with an explosion and everyone being blown up. Which was perfect because it was in the in the area of the rocket testing range anyway, so that they actually get nuked at the end because yeah. you know? <laughs> it was a nuclear <laughs> missile. And I didn't realise that. I just thought it was normal ballistic uh, missiles. But, yeah, um, he, he actually nuked them at the end of that one. So there you go. There you go. Um, yeah, so, a, you know, a great little show, very topical, very satirical. In a yes. lot of ways, there's a lot of political messages in, in this particular one, uh, as opposed to some of the other ones, I think. Yeah. Did, did the version you listened to, did, did it have the, the second ending as well? With, no, with no, I don't know about the second ending. There's, so. just, there's a little bit tacked on just before the, the theme music. Um, oh, yes. With the sort of the, um, a bit like it's sort of the happy ending with the uh, the housewife and the husband coming home from work. That's right, John and Gwendolyn. Yeah. 
That's it. And, yes, uh, John and Gwenda, which is very much, um, I can't remember the, the name of the film, but it, it's, you know, around the horn. They yes. had a parody of it with uh, Binky Huckabuck and Dame Celia Mole Strangler. Oh, you're thinking um, um, Brief Encounter? Brief Encounter, thank you. Mm. It is a little bit like that. The acting is mm. a little bit like that, isn't it? I've got a little bit of grit in my eye, that film. Yes. Yes, um, that's the one. But yes, so so and Peter Sellers doing his best. Tron, darling. He does a well. I was going to say he does many female voices because he does um, mm. Crystal Jollybottom and Raise a Laugh, uh, mm. which is this kind of Beryl Reed esque kind of <laughs> voice. Um, but in this instance, he does this lady with a cut glass accent, mm. um, and uh, nice little payoff for you know for for, for the episode. Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn. John, John, darling. Gwendolyn. I've I found work, darling. I've got a job. Oh, John, I'm so glad for you. What is it, darling? Darling, all I've got to do is to move a piano from one room to another. <laughs> um, and with this one as well, I mean, I know people often forget about the musical. Um, interludes and I love the way that in a lot of the Goon Show scripts the characters of Max Geldray and Ray Ellington you know were were written into part to become the fabric of the story um, to a certain extent so there's a great one um, in the Greenslade story and it's one of the few times that Greenslade has a major major role in it Um, and you get John Snag in it. But Ray Ellington is his, his manservant in that called Ellinger. And I know Ellinger used to turn up in a couple of other things. And it was very un-PC. But Ray Ellington was, uh, I believe, something like part Jamaican or something like that. So, But he would take it in all good part. And he would turn up in these things. But um, I believe Max Geldray was Dutch. So, yes. I'm, I'm, yeah, but he he's referred to here as a saboteur. Um, but there isn't so much about Ray Ellington in this, but the, both numbers are very popular. Ain't Misbehaving, obviously, from Max Geldray is oh, yeah. perfectly rendered, oh. as always. I did, now, yeah, because you kind of, I was going to bring it up anyway, because I, I always like to ask this question. Um, mm. Did you skip the songs generally when you no, first listened? I, no. no, I don't skip the songs. I, I I, I listen to them as because it's how the show um, would have been listened to. And it it kind of gives you a breather from the anarchy that's going on, you know, because if you sometimes listen to a goon show without the musical interlude, I feel exhausted at the end. You know, it's like I, I just like my brain can't take anymore. So to have those interludes and I'm. I know it was the standard thing to have, and most comedy shows did, apart from Hancock's Half Hour, which was seen at the time as quite um, a breakthrough not to have the interludes. But then with that type of humour, I don't think the musical interlude would have worked particularly. Absolutely. No, you're, you're, you're right. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, Hancock being, you know, more or less a situation comedy, it wouldn't have been appropriate. No, to, it would have been to... really odd. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would, you know, and suddenly, you know, um, like, how could you have a classic like the Sunday afternoon at home when the humour is in the silence of that particular episode and suddenly you get Max Geldray playing Ain't Misbehaving on the Harmonica? <laughs> yeah. It just wouldn't work, would it? No, 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 absolutely not. So listen, I think I've not listened to Napoleon's Piano for, for many years, but mm. when I, you know, during my obsession when I was much younger with the goons, yeah, you know, it was burned into my, into my memory, burned into my soul. I knew, I, I yeah. knew it off by heart. But it is a great show, and it's it's perfectly performed. Everyone's on their, you know, a game. This is where the scripts are really, really tight. Yeah, and they're well constructed. They're not so rambling. They've got a purpose. Um, you know, this is a real this this is a show from one of the real, real golden what I would call the golden period, but hey, what do I know? But yeah, that's this this kind of three-year period where they were all 
seasoned performers, but they were really on top of their game. And, and it was before Sellers really became um, a film star. Um, I was looking up what he was doing film-wise in 1955, and he'd only really, I think, just been accepted to do The Lady Killers, which came out later in the year. Actually, because, um, yeah, I knew, I knew that because that, The Lady Killers was released in December. Mm. So it was only two months after this show went out. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to, so I, I actually texted um, uh, Mark Cousins, who's a Peter Sellers uh, mm. expert, and I, yeah. I asked him, I said, um, do you know when Sellers filmed lady killers mm. and, he's, and while, while we've been speaking he texted me back saying it was roughly between april and june 55 so oh, right. so, okay. so, so he, he would have finished it yeah yeah so he, he'd have finished that he'd have um he'd have been anticipating that coming out and mm. knowing that it was going to be a hit because it's mm. it's obvious you know it's, it's got guinness yeah. it's got it's an ealing comedy it's got a great script you know he must have known it was gonna it was gonna really his career was really gonna get um, a boost from that film because yeah pre the, the film before lady killers that he was uh, he was in and he was he was very much down the cast list was a, a film called john and julie which came out in 50 early 55 uh, right. which, which had um, sid james in it uh, among others actually yeah, yeah mm. well sid sid was already making quite a uh, he was in a lot of healing comedies and you know he was already making his mark in films um you know, I've seen I've seen some stuff from sort of early to mid fifties with him in. I mean, he's in smaller roles, but he's already starting to to kind of be a regular face in those type of movies. Um, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. You know, so that's that was the irony when he was cast. You know, when he was doing Hancock's Half Hour, in the fact that you know he was better known on film at the time than Tony Hancock was. So Sid was seen, certainly when the Hancock series started, Sid was seen as the bigger draw because he was more familiar to people that, that were cinema goers than Hancock was. If you think Hancock, Hancock's film forays, he only did about three or four. Um, I think the first one being The Rebel, and that was 1960, whereas Sid had been in film for, you know, a, a good 10 years before then. He was in the Lavender Hill mob, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So, as I say, fantastic show. Thinking about it as well, with just going back briefly to the topicality with Rockall, that was topical and it was kept in to the mm. edited versions that went out because yeah. to remove that would have been ruining the episodes. You, you couldn't. Well, you remove... wouldn't have had Blue Bottle, would you? Well, yeah. That, no. That's it. And 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 they couldn't not issue Napoleon's piano. You know, they couldn't mm. because there were certain goon shows that weren't um, that didn't go out as part of the transcription services uh, shows. Mm. Um, some of them because they were just far too topical or or for whatever reason it may be. But this is such mm -hmm. a classic show. You know, you couldn't imagine them not putting it out. Um, it's it's one of those shows that would be perfect for playing to a first timer. If you wanted to introduce yeah. someone to the goons, the gateway episode. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, and also just going quickly to touching back on the Tully goons, it was um, remade for the fourth episode of the first series of the Tully goons in October '63. Oh, okay. Next morning, I sat in my room eating my breakfast when suddenly, my... <laughs> who the devil are you, sir? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I was fishing. Fishing. This is a 34th floor. Oh, the river must have dropped. Um, I had a dear friend who's now no longer with us, unfortunately, but he was a great Goons fan and he was in the mental health industry and he kind of recognised what Spike had been going through and, and had his own demons. But to cut a very long story short, we did a couple of shows for charity in some pubs in um, down my way in Essex. And um, the, the, it was ironic, the first one we ever did, the mic wasn't on until the second show. So we were sitting there doing all of these wonderful voices to a group of very appreciative 10 people, um, but no one else could hear us. But by the time the mic worked, 
Um, and we were doing the the second show. I think we did the Batter Pudding Hurler of Bexhill on Sea, and I think the Man That Never Was. Um, they were by the time the Man That Never Was came on, we 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 had the pub in our hands. It, it was great, and we got a lot mm. of money that night. And he recreated those as well. And we're hoping in his memory to bring um, a couple of the shows back. Um, and put any money we raise to mind. Um, okay. But that's not even going to be talked about probably until November. But, um, yeah, so that should be fun. So I should be doing some voices then with about three other guys that are also really into it who are good mates of mine. So that'd be fun. Oh, great. Excellent. Yeah, because I've spoken to a number of people that have been on, on, on this show have been involved either... Um, on an amateur level or even on a professional level with recreating goon shows on stage. Uh, and also, you know, when there were kids taping themselves doing the scripts, it's, it's a common theme for sure. So Angie, listen, thank you so much. It's been, it's thank been you. wonderful. Thank you for, for coming on to help me talk about Napoleon's piano and, and uh, yeah. hope you've enjoyed it. I have enjoyed it. Thank you for your time, Tyler. It's been great fun. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or uh, suggested topics for future shows, you can message me on Twitter at Goon Show Pod. Until the next episode, bye.